Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I've just been thinking about Hunter's... My, my favourite bit of uh, Hunter's writing the Beatles biography um, experience was when they asked him to get on the train to Bangor. And he goes, no, I've got enough copy. <laughs> it's the idea that there's quite enough happening here. I don't need that as well. You know, I can miss it out. So we're dealing now from, from one very... You know, one, art- one group of artists with a very short, busy career to an artist with a longer but no less busy career. And our second legendary writer we're joined by this evening. Would you please welcome Mr. Paul Morley. Thank you. So, Paul. Yes, David. The age of Bowie, how David Bowie made a world of difference. There's usually a lot of thinking about these titles in publishers uh, and subtitles and so forth. What, what was the thinking behind that? The first one, actually. The first title? first title, Age of Bowie. Um, I, I, like, I like it when things start, patterns start to develop and in the language of the modern world where everyone with a kind of form of cultural amnesia is currently liking to describe everything as the best thing ever. I, I, I noticed that the age of was becoming something quite interesting, which was as both a subconscious and a conscious representation of a certain certain period of history, I think, coming to an end, that we might be looking at it from a historical point of view. Uh, and because David Bowie had been there at the very beginning, in a way, as a teenager forming a skiffle group, and there at the very end when he's influencing anybody that's got any interest in pop music is still trying to be special. I just thought, well, there's an age. And right. pop culture has developed, and he was there all along. And it just seemed it's the age of Bowie. And then David Bowie made a world of difference, because it's interesting if you look at anything now, whether it's the Hilton Hotel or Spotify or Apple or Google, they're all basically entering the world with a sense that they're, you know, groovy and, and right on, you know. They've basically inherited the elements of popular culture, even though they are corporate companies. And I thought that was interesting as well, that that's definitely the end of something and the beginning of something else. But that's, that's an age, and, and who better to represent that age in a way than David Bowie? It's interesting, isn't it? You, know, you, no longer would, you wouldn't think of a company not wishing to be groovy. They have to have know. popular culture associated, which is why pop's become the establishment, and that happened within David Bowie's time. Um, you go back, you know, when Hunter was talking about the 60s and, and, and indeed Bowie's decade, the 70s, you know, these were, the, this was early days. The, the, it wasn't covered in the tabloids. It wasn't covered as constantly. It wasn't every day. It was a rare, unusual, indeed moderately subversive, revolutionary thing. And it's interesting to see the way that's in fact, it, it succeeded in one sense. The whole world has become popular culture, but in, in a way that's also its failure because what it lacks is the subversive, slightly provocative, unexpected quality. Because now it's won, hasn't it? It's won and it's lost. It's lost because, obviously, the Apples and all these authoritarian companies, which they effectively are, dictators, 
one of their, their brilliant elements of their dictatorship is that they are using popular culture to pretend that actually they're giving people something unusual and surprising and subversive, but in fact they are just the new establishment. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I guess Coke started it first, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go going back through your experience uh, uh, of David Bowie. I think this is roughly where you start in the book, isn't it? This is where you start to become aware of David Bowie. Space oddity around there, isn't it? it? it it's very much, for, for, for whatever reason, uh, me entering my teens in late 60s, early 70s is when I become aware of someone like David Bowie, which is interesting in itself from the point of view of telling a story. Because that's the moment when you want to become aware of someone like David Bowie. You're going through these unbelievable changes yourself. Adolescence is beckoning, you know, this extraordinary moment where you become someone else. You change who you are. And there to help you through these uh, turbulent changes is David Bowie. And so I, I, I try to get across in the book these first intermittent senses that I had of David Bowie. That there was a song called Space Oddity, but it didn't really seem to be by anybody. It could have been by the man who, who actually landed on the moon. It wasn't really a David Bowie song, it was a novelty hit. Hearing his name said by people like John Peel, not really understanding, but sensing that something was up. And, and this, is, this is happening at the same time as me beginning to have an awareness of music, of popular music, of records. It's all happening at the same time that David Bowie is going through a certain kind of change. He'd had his big moments of discovery and um, planning, if you like, in the 60s. But by, the, by 1970, by 1971, when I was 13, 14, he was ready for action, and I, I am, I'm ready too. We're both ready. And, and there's not only just me that's ready for action, there's other teenagers too. We're ready for action. We've had the Beatles, we've had the Stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They seem ages ago, it seems daft now, but those two, three years, it seemed centuries. We want something and there's David Bowie. Yeah. Why was he so well-placed in 1971? Why was he so ready, you think? Well, he'd been extraordinarily thwarted in the 60s. Uh, he, there was that sense which, you know, to some extent I've tried to write the book as much as a work of fiction as anything else. And what was fascinating about the 60s is he's, he's starting very early. He's, he's, he's almost a contemporary of your Lennon and McCartney's and your Ray Davis's and your Pete Townsend's. But he's not quite there. He's on the outside. He's a bit young. Well, they're, you know, it's it's interesting how early he starts. He starts with skiffle. So his span is is incredible. And he's studying in a way. He's the first fan of David Bowie. He's the first student of David Bowie. Way before the rest of us. He's, He's there. And I think that was interesting that he tried certain things out in the, in, the, in the 60s, but it didn't quite work. But he was building up confidence. He was building up knowledge. He was studying with interesting people, whether that was Tony Hatch, the producer, or Lindsay Kemp. Um, all the things that he was receiving from elsewhere, like the Velvet Underground and Charles Mingus. He's constantly studying. And I, I decided to take the decision that he made a constant choice. The 60s weren't his. But, my God, he's going to take the 70s. So as soon as the 70s start, he's in position. All right, right. Let's just talk about his family background for a moment. And this is him and his mother, born in Brixton. Poor background, or how would you characterise it? Well, you've asked an interesting question, David, because obviously as a biographer of David Bowie, you, you, again, make decisions about how you're going to tell the story. What story are you going to tell? And there is the received wisdom, there's the perceived wisdom, there's the understanding that it was this kind of backdrop. I I sometimes view it as a little bit like a Philip K. Dick story, that he'd been planted there. You know, this was the right circumstances for him to be planted. He actually is basically on a kind of weird quest to discover what it is to be human. Uh, And I love the idea that we have this sense of his background and, and where he began in life. Uh, the family with, you know, the, the, the family with a certain history of mental illness, the, the brother that's 10 years older and is, is genuinely suffering from, from a form of mental illness. Uh, the, the mother's side of the family that he, he decides is where he's inheriting this kind of madness from. It's, it's, it's interesting to denote the beginnings of the story of David Bowie that we've now decided to tell and how that got organised. And, and I guess writing the book, that was something I was very interested in. You know, the, well, what biography of David Bowie are we telling? Can it be as detailed as Hunter's um, story? Or, or are, are we really inheriting uh, assumptions and versions? Uh, and, and it's quite mystifying how that begins. So you generalise it. You know, it's post-war, it's the 50s, it's South London... 
Um, he comes from this kind of family. We have these incredible kind of photographs that I still, to me, look staged. Uh, that's possibly part of the paranoia that I have uh, coming from a certain part of popular history. But, uh, but I just, I, just I, I, I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I, I didn't want to trust any of that information because it's not necessarily anything I was particularly interested in telling the story. You know, for me, David Bowie is a different kind of structure. Uh, and I understand as a biographer you have to take this into account. But, but the, the truth of it is, do we ever really know the truth, especially about someone like David Bowie? Right, so he's starting to invent himself yes. very early on. Almost when he was four years old. I mean, that's what's interesting. What was the moment that it occurred to him he could do this, that he could can take control of his story? And he's taking control of his story later as well. You know, when he writes that song, When I'm Five... Uh, which is basically about him being a four-year-old. He's, he's supplying a lot of interesting information uh, about what he was like at four that we, we can take at face value. It's a beautiful song. Uh, he's, it's almost the opposite of when I'm 64. Instead of going to 64, he's going back to four. And, and, and already he's writing about how he, he wants to change so much who he is, even at four. Uh, and I particularly like that idea that he's beginning to understand the benefits and virtues of changing who you are, even as a four-year-old. And the big first transformation, the first Ziggy, the first thin white duke, is him as a five-year-old. And that's basically what he's telling. This is when I become someone else. I couldn't resist this picture because um, I think this is when he was he was he was the the, the centre of a burst of publicity about around about. Young men and long hair, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. So the, the, you know, the long-haired men society, or whatever. Whatever it was called, yeah. And he was famously interviewed by Cliff Mitchellmore, I think. Beautiful Cliff Mitchellmore, that's right. And uh, I, I was interested in... What's your view? It, it always strikes me that hair is, uh, is really undervalued in popular music. All well, the way along the line. I think you can tell uh, the, 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 perhaps the most perfect history of popular music through the hair. Either the hair or the trousers. And in that sense... Which David, one, hair or trousers? Both, both. David's there all the way. Um, but I love this again, this planting back in history, the idea that it was almost his most significant move in the 1960s, not necessarily some of his music, or at this point he was in the Manish Boys, but just the idea that he was beginning to manipulate the media already, and even at 17 was very good at it. And I love that relationship he has with Cliff Mitchellmore, who's a very sophisticated broadcaster, one of the great broadcasters of all time. Yeah. But, but Bowie at 17, still Davy Jones, is, is on his level. Yeah, he's not afraid of him. He's not afraid of him, he's dealing with it really well. Uh, and that, that's one of the first moments you see an emergence of a David Bowie that understands that to be the kind of star he wants to be, it's not necessarily just about the music. It's about how you play the media. It's about how you tell your story. It, I mean, I love the fact that he talks, uh, and even at this stage when he's 17, 18, he's putting in the same sentence, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, thus positioning himself with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. He's already understanding that that's how you play the game. He's, he's as much, a, you know, he's a magician, he's a great songwriter, but he's also a great marketing man. And he's already beginning to uh, manipulate his image. And, and, and I love it because it's one of those things that you can now say seems so obvious that that should have been the case, that the first time really we see him on television, you know, we see him, uh, you know, already being a kind of David Bowie that he wasn't then, but he was already beginning to understand what he needed to be to do it. So for me, it was a quite a, kind of a significant moment. But hair is a hugely important issue. Yes, and he, he's not wrong in a way, because the risks that was being taken by those people in the 60s, it's very difficult to understand now when people are having their vaginas tattooed, as if this is a, a, you know, a really revolutionary statement. But in fact, in a sense, it's something you can purchase at Marks and Spencers. But back then, the, these were big decisions. They were changing things. They were making moves. They wanted to alter the status quo. So as much as there was a slight mischievous quality about it, and it was slightly trivial, there was also a grain of truth. To walk down the streets in the, in, at that time with long hair was to... It was a huge step. It was a huge step, and you would be threatened, and it was a dangerous move, and you would be called, like he said, you know, where's your handbag, love? I was just, I'm just reading Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, and um, the main threat of the, the, the draft for Vietnam is not so much getting killed, it's having to have your hair cut, you know, for a whole generation. It was a, they'd invested huge amounts of time in growing long hair, and nobody was going to cut it off. Well, I remember in the early 70s, there was this thing called underground music. 
and all my pals at 13, 14 were going to see Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. And I just had my hair cut. And I assumed that because I'd had my hair cut really short because of parental and school pressure, that I wouldn't be able to go. <laughs> that you could only get into the, the, the club <laughs> if you had long hair. But that's how it was. So you would grow your hair uh, it, like this. Oddly enough, sometimes just before punk happened as well, when it all changed. But because you felt that was your ticket to a, a, a secret club, if you like. Yeah, so hair yeah. was very important. It's hugely important. Yeah. This is... Uh, this is when he's starting to play. Um, this is taken, I, I suppose, in the late 60s. This was a, a free festival, I think, that took place in Crystal Palace. Or Croydon, somewhere. yes. Croydon, yes. Which, which was later... Same, same weekend as Woodstock. Same weekend. <laughs> Slightly less chocker, I think, but probably better lavatories. But his, his genius was writing about it as if he was talking about yes. Woodstock. He was. Yeah. Memories of a free, Memories fest- of a free, festival. free festival. He's talking about this in a field in Croydon. He's in, a, he's in a black mood because his father had just died. He's already having disillusionment with the idea of the hippies, which is interesting. Uh, so so he's it's got 1969 a, we're talking 69, about. exactly. Same weekend as Woodstock. Uh, but, but, but already, I mean, it's interesting that a year or two before, he's, he's writing these very, not childish, but quite childlike songs. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of those moments when Bob Dylan disappears and over six months he reappears incredibly sophisticated with an incredibly literate understanding of what a song could be. And in a way, this is what was happening to Bowie that year, 69. He begins it, you know, coming out of Uncle Arthur and laughing gnome and he ends, ends it writing these incredibly complicated nine-minute sweets about the end of the world. You know, so something very strange had happened. It can't just have been the, the death of his father. Uh, and, and that is a wonderful photograph of really kind of communicating that sense that he was not in a, a very good mood in that, in, uh, that weekend. He didn't like it because it seemed suddenly the hippie dream had, had, had gone wrong. He was aware, in a way, of what we now think of because of Altamont, that it, that it was not, not actually going to... It was really just about having a, a constant birthday party, in a way, a five-year-old birthday party birthday cake and balloons and, he, and he's got his mind on something far darker and far stranger already so, but he's still identified in many people's minds at that time with as you say the laughing gnome space oddity it's, it's kind of novelty tunes isn't it he's he is, what he's known for well what's interesting is he is and continues to be the greatest writer apart from maybe the Beatles the greatest writer of novelty songs of all time because all pop music, in a way, is, is the writing of a novelty song. The genius is doing it again and again yes. and again. Yes. And Bowie and one or two others have managed to prove that. And he's definitely going through that period where he's finding out who he is by writing certain songs, not quite sure how to write a melody yet, not quite sure how to write something sophisticated. He's beginning to find out in 69. He's beginning to... F- I mean, you've heard the first version of Space Oddity. It still sounds a little bit like a children's song. It's still not quite formed yet. It needed other things to happen. Uh, and, and so it, it's kind of... Um, I imagined a world in the book where the other record of the year that year was Where Do You Go To My Lonely by Peter Sarstead? And there is a world where Bowie could have become that. That was it. And that would be him for the rest of his life. And I think this freaked him out, this sighting of what can happen when you appear to have finally made it. You've had your hit. But that actually can fix you in place. Because he could have been a troubadour. He could have been a troubadour. Acoustic guitar. Acoustic guitar. That was all people would have ever wanted to hear from him from the rest of his life. And it's little things like that, I think, that that contribute, certainly in the story I tell, to the idea that he wants to keep changing, that he wants to keep moving, because he's seen what it's like if you get fixed in place with a novelty hit. And that did happen. And And it's interesting, 69... Uh, and it's only two years later that he's managed to extricate himself from it. But those two years must have seemed like an eternity. That these are people that had a lot of influence on him one way or another. Yes. So we've got Hamani Farthingale, Farthingale yeah. on, the, yeah. on the left there. Yeah. Was it was his, it was his first big girlfriend? Well, that? we decide that that's his, the first time he really fell in love and, and saw the possibility that for, for what he wanted to be and do... Falling in love might not necessarily be a good thing, that it might be a distraction. Uh, I tread carefully because I've signed many pieces of paper, obviously. Um, but that is an interesting moment. Um, she's important because, to some extent, after the first album, uh, which I particularly have a, a, quite a soft spot for in a way, 
um, he was so embarrassed to some extent and, and so mortified by the response to this selection, if you like, of, of, of slightly contorted children's songs that he literally stopped singing. He became a mime to some extent. And that, for a while, that's what he was doing. It was much less to do with popular music and more to do with a different kind of, of happening, if you like. And Hermione, to some extent, brought him back into music. I mean, she was very much, and again, I've signed a piece of paper, so I have to be careful. She was very much um, a dancer, a classically trained ballet dancer, who thought, in fact, that David was um, taking the mickey when he pretended he could dance, because, of course, he couldn't. He couldn't move. He still, you know, he never could. He could mime, he could take shape, but he couldn't dance. He was very stiff. Uh, but they formed a, a wonderful alliance, uh, and, and obviously with uh, the group Feathers, with John Hutchison. Uh, and, and that was an interesting moment because that drew, drew him back, if you like, into music, into making music after this abortive period where he, he could have almost become either a mime artist or a, a monk. And both, in the story I tell, were, were very significant possibilities. Uh, and he starts writing songs again. And on the right, we've got P- Peter Frampton's father. Yeah, well, Owen Frampton. Um, an early, I mean, this was earlier, Owen Frampton, uh, to an extent. That was at Bromley, and Owen Frampton was um, uh, David Bowie's earliest, to some extent, most significant teacher, in a way, more for, uh, a formal teacher. Um, Owen Frampton was very interested very early in the whole idea that what was important in the modern world um, was design, was media, um, was a history of art. And he gave David Bowie, uh, at 14, uh, uh, an art education uh, and obviously in the 60s that was a very significant change you know with your, your Pete Townsends and and, uh, uh, and your Mick Jaggers and your Ray Davises they were basically artists that were using popular music as their material David Bowie was getting that earlier than most people um, how to be uh, thinking about how to sell yourself how to, how to create an image of yourself what that was very early days for that Owen Frampton saw very early on when David Bowie was 14 that he was already operating in the school he was at, like a kind of cult leader. He could see it. It upset the other teachers, but Owen loved that idea that there was something interesting going on. So, Owen so Fram- what, other, other boys followed him, did they? Other, other boys followed him. Other boys were intrigued by him. I mean, he was, he was, I guess he was very beautiful. He was very strange. All those things that later became apparent to the rest of us were obviously very apparent early doors to his school friends. And Owen Frampton's son, obviously, Peter Frampton, you know, went on to become a rock star. And it was that whole period that happened with, like, George Underwood as well, the other um, pupil at the school, uh, another pupil at the school, who was the guy that punched David and created the wonderful... Illusion of the Eyes, which is a significant moment in, in elevating David Bowie above the everyday, if you like. Uh, you know, Owen Frampton was there when that happened and was mortified. So the, the, the interesting moments of transformation. I love the moment, that, you know, when, when David Bowie is hit by George Underwood and, the, and, and obviously has the condition that creates the sense that the eyes are different colours. And he never really complains about what happened. In fact, he says to George, don't worry, I can even sing better now. But I think he was very aware early doors that it was, it was, a, it was an important factor in, in how he would look as it separated him. It made him look different. So he remained close to George Underwood throughout his life? Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, David Boyd's kind of got a weird combination of, of, of dismissing people very quickly and also returning kind of loyalty to certain people. So some people, as soon as he's used up their use, which sometimes can be very quickly, sometimes maybe a year or two, they're gone. Because he felt he'd been treated the same way. Sometimes he'd been dismissed very quickly. So he, he didn't take it personally and didn't think anyone else would. And on the other hand, there were other people he would, he would maintain relationships through, you know, with quite a long time. But fiercely ambitious. Crazily ambitious, absolutely. Would never have settled for normal life whatever that means. Well, that's one of the things I was very intrigued by. When, when did this moment happen? You know, what, can, we, can we possibly isolate a moment, a smell, a colour, a, a hearing of a piece of music that made him so ambitious, that made him decide that that... I mean, everyone is to an extent, and everyone wants something. And in the late 50s, early 60s, a lot of people were obviously thinking, I'm going to be a pop star. It wasn't that unusual. I'm going to grow my hair, I'm going to wear these strange clothes. But Bowie was slightly above all that. He had something else that was you know, uh, that was harder and, and, and more concentrated to the extent that you can read into it the idea that he was basically, you know, other, on, on a quest 
to, to find out what it is to be human, which was, which was a constant factor. You know, what, what is it to be a human being? What is it to be alive? It, was, it, it kind of infected everything he did, and it seemed to come to him very early on. But he was very fortunate that he, he had the support of some people who really believed in him, didn't they? I mean, both, both these two guys here... So we've got Tony DeFries here, who's the better-known manager. Yes. Well, yeah, the ruthless bastard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I've signed a piece of paper. I shouldn't have said that. But Ken Pitt on the left. Gentleman Ken Pitt. But, but Tell that us about was, him. Well, what was interesting is that whatever happened with David Bowie, uh, however much he failed in the 60s, and he failed many times with producers, with managers, with record companies... He, he, he was allowed to carry he on. He got back up. He got he? back up. But also, there were people still prepared to have trust in him, have faith in him, believed in him. You read about Tony Hatch or, you know, all the producers that were making, even if he'd failed, they decided that there was still something there. Yeah. They thought they could be the one. Uh, Ken Pitt definitely thought he could be the one. Um, from a point of view, he could understand uh, that David Bowie wanted to be a kind of showman. Uh, a slightly unusual sort of thing to expect a 60s musician to be which of course then tripped up into the whole Anthony Newley thing which was you know, a complicated moment but was part of that world uh, but in a way had a, a kind of well, a gentleness, a politeness that, that really wasn't going to work for David Bowie. David Bowie needed the monsters ultimately like Tony DeFries, the ones that believed in, believed in him even more than he believed in himself and to an extent he believed in himself you would have thought more than anybody uh, and, and, and uh, it's interesting the transfer between Ken Pitt and Tony DeFries is also a transfer between the 50s and the 60s to an extent of, 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 of which weaned Ken Pitt and a different kind of mentality a monstrosity that was also not only and in fact wasn't someone from a pop music background was more from a fashion background and had a different idea of, of, of how to make David Bowie truly a monster. Whereas Ken Pitt almost just wanted to turn him into a knife. One of the mistakes he made, and he tried to sort of make up for it later, was that saying that he just wanted to make David Bowie the new Tommy Steele. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then he tried to explain what he meant, that once upon a time that was a good thing yes. to be, you know. Whereas Tony DeFries, we're talking, you, know, you can see from that, the, the difference in that, it's only a few years, but the difference in the photographs. You know, we've left the past and we've entered the future, you know. But it fascinates me um, that um, he made Hunky Dory without a record company, didn't he? It was just paid for. Sheer, by, sheer ambition, sheer. By the publisher and uh, yeah, Tony DeFries. I think he couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop doing this. It was in him, he had to get it out. Uh, and yeah, Tony, Fries, Tony DeFries had to sell it. I mean, he'd been on three or four labels already. And Tony DeFries managed to convince RCA in America, which was, you know, part of the legend that therefore it's Elvis's early label, which makes a lot of sense. And same birthday. Did that, was that yes. a serious issue with, with RCA in the States? Were they, were they, you know, intrigued by the idea that. Well, had they had the, the same birthday. Yeah. Well, he had the same birthday as Shirley Bassey and Ron Moody. I don't know that had as much influence, <laughs> you know. But you never know. Back then, who knows, you know. It might have done. But I think also when you met him, and in, 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 it, it seems the case all the way up to the very end, if you met David Bowie, you were charmed. Whether you're a record company executive, a fan, a musician, whoever it was, you saw something very instantly. And even though he'd been you know, a failure for so many years, RCA was still prepared to take it on. Mercury had just before. RCA was still prepared to take it on. Uh, and that's more than just the music. That's more than just having a, a quite brutal manager. There's something else going on, you know. It's, 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 sedu it's seduction. Now, the other person in his life, obviously, around about this time, is, is his wife, Angie. Yes. How significant was she in his career? Well, I think in that moment, um, being, what was happening is he was developing this entourage. There was the whole Hatton Hall thing in Beckenham, this... Um, sort of building uh, along the... I think it was the South End Road, and uh, effectively it's where he's literally go. And it looks like something that's been transplanted from Transylvania. And it, and it becomes like a, a laboratory. Because um, it uh, looks like a millionaire's pad. It does, but it? he's only got a small part of it, because it's obviously even then had been carved up into flats. But it was a wonderful way of communicating the illusion, and it was very scary if you lived around there. And in there, there were parties, there were meetings, Visconti, Tony Visconti's coming... All sorts of things are happening. He's writing some of his most immortal songs, you know, often thinking about them on the bus to Lewisham. 
like life on Mars. Uh, and already you can see that this is a very different, uh, a, a very different set of conditions about how to start organising who you are. And, and Angie, I think, was very important as part of that entourage that, we, that was building, there were also, as there always is, as we know, with rock and pop stars, it's the entourage that's always interesting. Those around you that yeah. are taking you to places, showing you things. You can do certain things, but you need this other sort of sense of dynamics. I mean, she was the one really pulling in more towards Tony DeFries and away from Gentleman Ken Pitt. It's becoming harder. Uh, he's, he's oddly... He's, he's inherited the reticence of his dad, in a way, that kind of 50s English reticence, which was always there and gave him that slightly strange aristocratic quality all through his life. It's a very 50s way of being being male, if you like. And, and he needed the hard-edged representation of his own crazy ambition, but Angie represented it, you know, with that kind of American force. She, did she introduce him to the gay world? Well, they went to those clubs, you know... Do you think that's significant? Yes, I, I do, because I think that underground energy that was being very contained in those places and had to be contained because there was illegality, it had been sort of slightly changed in 1967... Uh, but was still effectively an underground world and people would meet in these clubs and, and swap all sorts of energies that they couldn't on the surface, so to speak. And I, I think that was a, a very important part of the costumes, the appearance, the subversive energy of Ziggy Stardust, that he was coming out of, of, of an underground place and suddenly hitting the mainstream with full force. Uh, and this kind of thing, how he appeared, how he made himself up. He, he, he responded to it because he was a natural... He was a, definitely an aesthetic sponge. He, 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 he absorbed information, all sorts of intellectual information, aesthetic information, um, how to make yourself up, how to appear. Again, on a, a weird quest to work out what it is to be human. And therefore, there were no limitations on that. You know, it, it wasn't black or white. It wasn't male or female. It wasn't young or old. It wasn't old or new. It was, it was beyond that, which I think is what made him so significant. Uh, and I think he discovered a lot of the, the flamboyance that, enter, that, that, that mingled with his appreciation of the avant-garde and the experimental. He got a lot of the flamboyance from those, from those gay clubs. Right. Can you remember the famous Top of the Pop Starman? Like I, I'm like I saw it yesterday. Why do people remember that? I can remember it. Yeah. Why does everybody remember it? Wasn't that remarkable? Well, it depends. In what way wasn't it that remarkable? Well, it was just stuck in your head, but, you know, it was, well, nothing amazing happened. Yeah, but back then, things didn't happen that much. Right. You know, now everything happens every five minutes, doesn't it? You know, back then, there were three or four music papers. There were a couple of DJs who might have been interested in. There were one or two TV programmes. Popular music and, and, and the event, the specialness, was a rare thing. And also, because it had been thwarted so many times, and because it had taken him a long time to get to the position, by the time he finally got on top of the pops, he was unbelievably skilled at manipulating an audience. So we might be remembering it because of the shock of that moment he looked into the camera. That's... It's the confidence to do that. That's pretty something, because he doesn't seem it. But I think you'll know, David, having been on television, to actually turn to the camera, oh, I've got the right one, because often you get the wrong (laughs) one. I usually get the wrong one, you know. Where's the red light? That moment, that, that took a lot of confidence, and it was the combination of his studying movement, studying mind, being a clown to an extent, understanding physical movement, understanding the connection between... Even though he was miming, truly miming on that case in terms of his voice. And I just think that the idea that um, there was a definite division uh, in society between the establishment, between your parents, and between school, whereas now there's not... So it's very difficult to really understand the shock of a moment when basically something that you're watching usually with your parents... Absolutely. Because it was still on BBC One. It was on BBC One. So sticky. You're watching it with your parents, and there's a man that looks like a woman putting his arm around a man that looks like a woman, but is really a man, and you can tell... And he's looking at you, and he's saying, you, who, who? Now, I tell you, I used to get in fights at school before David Bowie was successful, because people thought he... uh, Those that had Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Led Zeppelin under their arm thought that David Bowie was a queer, that he was no good, and that he was really nothing other than a kind of slightly made-up Donny Osmond. And and one of the reasons that they thought this is because he went, oh, 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 
meant that he didn't have any idea about what words to use, that he'd run out of words, that he actually wasn't very good. I used to have literally fist fights with people because they thought that, that he, was, he was padding. <laughs> uh, and so it was, it, was, it was dangerous in a way, you know, not, not to be sentimental about this and to say, oh, it was better than. It was just very different. This was a different time. And this was a moment when lots of things were changing and popular culture and pop music was not what it is now, which yeah. is the establishment. It was still on the outside. The great heroes of popular music were still on the outside and they were making decisions and doing things that had a kind of risk to them. And if you copied them, and I did, I immediately bought a satin jacket at 14 for £7.50 from a, a boutique on, on, on Mersey Square that used to, oddly enough, supply clothes to Jimmy Savile. And I went home... Exactly, it's a complicated story, you know. And I went home and my father's absolutely mortified because I suddenly have a satin jacket and I think he sent me out to get a, a blazer, you know. Uh, and, and so there was, a, there was this element of it being slightly... Uh, you know, David Bowie is basically saying, I'm different, you can be different. And that's actually... Um, a, a, a revolutionary act. So yes, it's popular music. He's, he's in Jackie with David Cassidy. He's singing these amazing escapist songs, but he's also diagnosing the future. He's is, issuing apocalyptic warnings. He's being incredibly sexy. He's recommending uh, experimental mentality. He's, he's demonstrating the glamour of intellectual discovery. This is dangerous. You know, it's not like now, where basically everybody's just selling, and, and even if they've tattooed their vagina, they're still just selling. These were moments of change, it's significant change. And, and so therefore, him appearing on top of the pops and doing what he was doing, it, it, it is quite a moment. I wanted to share this rather attractive picture of a, of, a, of a David Bowie shirt that you can order on the internet, if anybody wants it. Uh, just, just, as, just so you can tell me, roughly, there's loads of David Bowie records there. Yeah. Where's your favourites? <laughs> Go on. Where's your heart lie in David Bowie land? You're a fucking bastard. <laughs> I've been having a lot of difficulty with this now, having been uh, coming out, so to speak, as a biographer of David Bowie. Because the most popular question is often, what's your favourite David Bowie song? And, and being a true Bowieist, I don't want to hear that question. OK. I didn't um, ask you that. Uh, I'll, I'm going to keep going a little bit. And today I, I answer that question by trying to think of songs from the 70s that I particularly liked um, that began with S. I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, you know, in a, in a certain way. So, you know, obviously there's uh, Superman and Sorrow and Stay and Suffragette City and Sound and Vision. I thought, I'm doing really well here. But they wanted to still end with Heroes. And I thought, well, that's all right. It ends with an S. So I could just about get away with it, you know. Um, I mean, being a low kind of guy... You know, Low, right. you yeah. know. I mean, even at the time, I just couldn't believe it. And also, the the fact that in a way that this whole mo- you know, low and I don't think it's there. Yeah. Station Probably to might station. be around the back. Yeah, station to station to the back. <laughs> Probably at the navel. <laughs> and um, that that moment that he managed to transform from being this and this. Uh, and this to an extent, and definitely this, you know, Hunky Dory, Aladdin Sane, Diamond Dogs. The fact that he managed to make that move was one of the things that I think is so f- fantastic and fascinating. That with the station to station and low, and he even began on Diamond Dogs to an extent, he is predicting where music is going to go. And all of his peers and all of his contemporaries, whether it is your, your, your Mark Bolands and your Slades, or whether it is your Velvet Undergrounds and your Mick Jaggers, none of them really managed to make that extraordinary transformation within the 70s, let alone the wider transformation to not only constantly keep up to date but, be, but but also sort of you know he was obviously a sponge and he had many many influences but he was constantly being able to predict and suggest and obviously by predicting and suggesting he was making it happen where music was going to go and that's a very rare thing in rock as you know you know it's a very i mean he had to get rid of mick ronson in a way because ronson was pulling yeah. him back and he wanted to make this move into young americans and uh, and, and that whole period of of the funk and the soul at a time when soul and funk and disco was looked upon in the rock world as an utter sellout Again, it's forgotten in time because it's, it's, it's all been sort of turned into something else. But they, they, they were big decisions for a, a so-called rock musician to make. And then he did that and he came out of it, you know, with the, with the Station to Station Low Heroes Lodger period. Dick, I wanted to ask you about... Um, you just t- touched upon it there, that um, 
He's worked with close collaborators for short periods of time, hasn't yes. he? It's been yes. really important to him. Yes, absolutely. Really important. Really we got, important. Yes. We, got, we got Robert, Fripp, Brian Eno. Yeah, the little e. units. And the Nile, Nile, yes. Stevie Ray Vaughan, Mick Ronson. Well, well, my reading of that is it's, 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 it's very much that he had the mentality of a jazz musician in a way. You think of the way Miles Davis, you know, he's coming out of the 40s and the 50s working with Charlie Parker. And he's constantly changing his rhythm section, changing his surroundings, changing his environment, and moving forward and, and inventing different kinds of music. It's always Miles Davis, but it's always changing. In 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, he's always there and thereabouts having made this move. And Bowie, obviously being a jazz fan and, and being turned on very early to your Roland Kirks and your Charles, Charles Minguses and being very influenced by the way that they could kind of turn pieces of music out of improvisation and scraps of thoughts. It's almost like he's applying a jazz mentality to the making of music. He has different units, he has different rhythm sections. Sometimes they last a bit, sometimes they don't. Different guitar players. Very like Miles Davis. So even though we're used to approaching it through the rock prism, so to speak, and we think of it that way, and, and obviously it doesn't sound like jazz, even at the very end, when he was more orthodoxly a, a jazz unit he was using... I just think he had that flexibility of mind about how he was um, uh, making his music in a studio. For me, this is the, the, the great, you know, the spirit, what I call the, the spiritual power trio that, 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 that did the, the illusion of the Berlin music at the end of the 70s and the idea of a Bowie genre, if you like, was the absolute essence of the way he operated. Because one of the things I adored about David Bowie from the very beginning was this wonderful combination where he loved show business and he loved the garlands and the basses and the big sort of, you know, the, the, the heartfelt, you know, communication and seduction of an audience. But he was also quite avant-garde and experimental and he's one of the few people that managed to put the two things together. Uh, and, and at that moment when he could have become Elton John or Billy Joel, he turns to his experimental elements to actually become something else. And, and, and that, for me, at the time, it suited me where I was and suited a lot of other people. It was just as a transformative moment. Oh, you're a big fan of Mark Boland. <laughs> I am, yes. You know, where did Mark Boland go wrong and David Bowie go right? Because, you know, that's like the... That's the moment, isn't it? It's a it? poignant moment because... Occasionally... They knew each other a long time, from the early 60s, and they, they had a similar sort of crazy ambition to make it, and they were friends a lot of the time. Um, uh, Mark was the guy that actually bought David his stylophone for Space Oddity, and David ran around when he'd finished Space Oddity to Mark's house to play at him. He'd say, what do you think? And Mark said, it's a hit, Davey, it's a hit. Uh, and they were a lovely couple, but they fell out occasionally. Uh, and for a moment, uh, 71... 72, which was another factor in, in increasing Bowie's intense, intense need to make it because he wanted to make it so much. And then Mark made Had it before made it. him. <laughs> yeah, he made it. And made it using Tony Visconti. Yeah, yeah. Who David could have had earlier, but, but Tony Visconti was not convinced by David's work ethic. Whereas Mark allowed Tony Visconti to do it. So that was an interesting moment. So Mark had the success before David. Uh, but then Mark kind of got crushed a little bit by his own sort of hubris. Didn't think he needed Tony Visconti anymore. And David took off in America before. He became the, 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 the 70s Beatles in America. He was bigger than Jesus in America. And Mark was totally dedicated to cracking America. Wanted it so much. Couldn't believe he couldn't do it. Couldn't understand how David did it. Tried to replicate what David had done. The changing of image. The changing of music. Couldn't do it. Um... This was a bit... I mean, it was interesting because I, I used to... I knew Mark Boland at this point. Because so this I started, is what, 1977? I started writing for the New Musical Express. The first uh, pop star I ever interviewed was Mark Boland. Right. And that was at a time when Mark Boland's reputation had crashed. That's why you got the job. Well, I was a fan, and I was the only one that liked him. Yeah, and, and he couldn't believe it. And he loved that I loved him. Yeah, oh, you're the only one... For, I don't know why I'm doing this voice, but never mind. You're the, you're the only one from the enemy that likes me. And we got on really well. And he was filming this television show, a kind of children's television show, oddly enough, in Manchester. And uh, I got to know him. And he would invite me down to the studio. And, you know, I remember asking him about David Bowie once. And he said, uh, 
just before this photograph was taken. And he said, oh, David, he's always getting the blues. I'm doing it again. Yeah, it's really good. He, sorry. He's always getting the blues, man. You know, so I thought it was really interesting, you know. And maybe it was because he got the blues that he could make the music he could and Mark wouldn't acknowledge that he got the blues. But I must tell you about this because this is quite a significant moment in my relationship with David Bowie, having never met him is that I'd been down to the studio where this was recorded a few times at Granada Television in Manchester. And on that day, I'd been asked down again. Mark had got in touch with me. It was incredible to be... I mean, he was my big idol and he was communicating with me. And he said, I'm going to do the voice again. Do you want to come down, Paul? I'm, you know, on Thursday, you know, we're doing the last one in the series. And unfortunately, because at that point, working for the enemy had taken over... I had a job to do for the NME. Go on, tell us what it was. He was interviewing C.P. Lee of Alberto E. Los Trios Paranoias in Disbury. And I took this very seriously, as you would, and I said, I can't make it this week, you know, assuming, you know, there'd be another time. He didn't tell me, the bastard, what was going to happen on the show. So while I was uh, taking tea with C.P. Lee, the the great Chris Lee in Disbury, David Bowie was on on the Mark show. Uh, and, I, and, then, and I heard about it, I was mortified, I saw it, it was just astonishing. I assumed it would be okay that I'd see Mark again and I'd probably meet David again. But of course Mark died seven days, yeah. eight days later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he did the Live Aid thing, didn't he? You yeah. know, he, did, he, was, he was quite ready to do the kind of simple, conventional pop star thing when he felt it was useful Well, to he, he would sabotage his role as a rock star sometimes and sometimes he would play. And I think he liked the idea as part of his methodology that, that he, he could be the rock star. And I think it was very important, the delay before he did Let's Dance in 1983, which certified him as a more conventional MTV rock star. Uh, which in a way he'd sabotaged at the end of the 70s. But I think he delayed, obviously, because he had this con- you know, convoluted contract with Tony DeFries, who was taking a percentage of his music for quite a considerable amount of time. That finished, and then almost simply to whack Tony DeFries in the eye, he decided he would make his most commercial record. <laughs> he would be produced by a, a, a producer in a way that he never had before, yeah, in a yeah. way. He'd always sort of, if you think about it, even with Visconti and Ken Scott, there was a kind of collaboration... And, and Eno, there was a collaboration. He was still the producer to some extent. With, with um, Nile Rogers, he sort of allowed Nile Rogers to take it over, understanding that now he could do this and that it was an important time to do it both financially and commercially. And he was very willing. He loved, he loved being the showman. He loved being, you know, playing to thousands and thousands of people because with an avant-garde mentality and having occasionally been really obscure and played in front of 20 people, he knew that that was not for him. You and, know? and that is presumably why the radio station insists that your item finishes with heroes because that's what made it famous. That's it wasn't, it wasn't even a hit, was it? Well, first? you know what's... That's, I mean, I often think, you know, it's interesting about David Bowie's songs that we now consider beloved anthems of the world. But they, a lot of them took a long time to dawn on people, to grow on the world, if you like. Heroes, definitely so. Yeah. Now, when Heroes first came out... I'm sorry, David, I'm, yeah. I'm going to say this. Because I think it was interesting, but I remember when Heroes came out that it was almost like a mockery of triumph. It wasn't really about triumph because it was coming out of his experimental period. And, and there was his inverted, commas, his inverted commas. And the idea that gradually, as if he knows, it becomes about triumph and yeah. that we can all have triumph is part of his genius. You, you can't fight it. He's casting ahead, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um... <laughs> These are, you know, what... He, he had a genius for getting people to o- overlook what many people would consider his embarrassing moments. He, he had a very, I think, avant-garde sense <laughs> of, of the boundaries of taste. And at the time, the rock critic was sort of controlling it, which is when he was at his heyday. He still ventured outside of that. He would still do the Bing Crosby. He would you know, still do the dad dancing. <laughs> you know, he would still do the, 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 the glorious radiant novelty song. Um, and, uh, and, he, and, and he would disappear inside a group as if it was important to, you know, basically say he was extraordinary by being ordinary. <laughs> but, but I don't think he... I mean, the only thing he seemed to ever admit to or you could suggest he was, he was uh, worried about was country music. <laughs> I don't think he ever went there, but everything oh, okay. else, pretty much, he was he OK never, with. He never went there. He never went there, not knowingly. <laughs> you know. But the... Um, yeah, I don't know when these pictures are. I mean, is it in the late 80s and in the 90s? I mean, he, he toured, he continued putting out records that didn't do very much at all. Isn't that fair to say? 
the, the day he died, I thought what was interesting it was there was a complete reconfiguring of the architecture of David Bowie. And, and uh, even though we lived through the 80s and 90s and he seemed to abandon his artistic powers, I think within it there was always a sense that he was, he was thinking of a different story. And, and it was a different time. So obviously lots of people caught up with him. The 80s supplied many, many versions of Bowie, whether it was Madonna or Morrissey or Prince or Michael Jackson. So he'd done his job. He couldn't compete or didn't want to compete with that. He, he, he kind of almost organised his own sort of sense of himself, not worrying so much that it wasn't necessarily playing into the hands of those that were still expecting Starman and Ziggy Stardust. You know, at the time, he seemed to disappear. He seemed to be someone somewhere else. But I think he was always aware of a greater shape to his life life and his career and his music than we were thinking at the time you know I think some of the better things he did in the 90s were his you know his Bowie Bonds his interviews he did with people the different sense of being David Bowie the sailor that he was on the internet sites he was he, he was still thinking ahead he just wasn't doing it in the guise of Ziggy Stardust do you think this exhibition this VNA exhibition was was very important in in terms of sealing his legacy while he was still alive. He was very con- in control of it, even though I, I, I was in... Uh, uh, I, I was a contributor to it, and so therefore I had my one amazing moment of collaboration with David Bowie, uh, which basically consisted of him saying yes or no, and you never really understanding whether he was saying yes or no. You had to trust your instinct. But he, was, he, he knew very much how important this was in terms of the future of the idea of someone like David Bowie. Uh, that he was going to tour the world, so to some extent he was still touring, that it was basically a different way of doing a performance that wasn't nostalgic, it wasn't sentimental, but in a way he couldn't perform like that anymore because of his age and, and other factors, but he could still send out the idea of David Bowie around the world, literally, which is, has been the case, it's, it's been around the world and continues to be so. So I think it was an important element of him taking control of his own obituary and, and also understanding that in the future there will be different ways that rock stars travel through history. And he was, he was staking his claim to be one of the first to understand that. So and th- then you have these, these last two albums in quite yeah. a short period of time. So presumably he knew his, he had limited time left. Well, you know, the, 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 the next day was interesting because it, became, it came out of a more intense period of people panicking or worrying or... Uh, suggesting or gossiping that he was about to die. Uh, and it was almost a false start for what actually happened. And then uh, the, the fact that he managed... I, people talk about him making a comeback, but I, I always say, well, no, he didn't make the comeback, the audience the made audience the comeback. The audience made it. That is yeah. definitely, that's yeah. definitely why. And that was different. Yeah. And, and he understood the times were ready for that to happen with the internet, with all music happening at once. He could suddenly fit in in a way that he couldn't during the 80s and 90s because of other factors. And he was very aware of that, very excellent at manipulating new terms, wanting to recreate the idea of what special was. Now, in the 70s, we know what that was. Now it's different because there's so much music, there's so many people releasing albums. So his, his, his way of withdrawing and then appearing out of nowhere was an incredible equivalent of specialness, but in a new way. And it's and influenced I, so many other people. And I suppose, actually, you know, at the end, what happened was that, that oddly enough, people respected his privacy, didn't they? Yeah. I got that impression. Yes, uh, he managed to organise it that he could enter this blissful late-life period to an extent. And I, and, and I, I, I decided to take the, the position that it was part of his processing, that he understood that withdrawal, that, that a kind of artistic silence was important to allow him to have a life, but he could also start manipulating his legacy, his image, and what would happen to it afterwards, which was very important to him. So there's the book, The Age of Bowie. Got time for a couple of questions. If anybody's got one. Have we got a microphone that we can get to this lady here? Um, it may have to be passed down the front row. Don't worry, but we want to... We want to record this, so... Um... thought one of the token women should ask a question. <laughs> um, David asked at the start about the title and subtitle of the book. I wondered out of the many iconic and often very colourful images of Bowie, and there are so many and everyone has a favourite, how did you alight on the one that you've got on the book and how hard was the process? 
I mean, in a way, that is a metaphor for the difficulty of writing a book about David Bowie as well. I mean, how many Bowies are there? How many different Bowies are there? Not that one would have, but that everyone would have. Where do you begin? What, do you, what story are you telling? Where, where do you begin? And in the end, I, I made it very you know, clear to myself, if no one else, that I was going to write this book very quickly. And first decisions were important because otherwise it would take me 400 years to write because there's so many ways of coming into the story, so many pictures you could use, so many performances. Um, this one, uh, in a way, because it reminded me of, of, of the period when I really fell in love with him to an extent, as not a man or a woman, uh, but there's a kind of energy, uh, and it has energy about it. And there was a, a thought of maybe using one at the end of his life, the age of Bowie, obviously. But I just felt that, that, that it was important in my story because it was the moment that I, I uh, a part of the moment that I fell in love with him. And it is a kind of love. And I think it's been represented in the way people have responded to David Bowie since he died, that there is love. And he put love into his music. Uh, and he's beautiful. And I think it's part of David Bowie that he should be seen as a very beautiful person. So uh, that was why. Why do you not like it? Of course I like it. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Have we got one question? Another lady. Have you ever found out uh, why John's family moved so many times when they were in Beckenham? Sorry, could you repeat that? Why, why, the, why the family... Why the Jones family moved so many times when they, were, when they moved from Brixton to Beckenham? Oh, why, why did... Well, why? It, was, it was Bromley. They didn't move that, that many times. And once, I mean, people kind of did back then. There was aspiration, don't forget. There was, you know, you're going to move. But he didn't, they moved within Bromley a couple of times, and, and it was him that moved to Beckenham. Um, I, I never thought they moved that many times, to be honest. You know? my, my bloody parents moved every two years. <laughs> His work, his father's work might have meant him... Well, he, was, he, he, he worked for Dr. Bernardes. pretty much the same place. But, uh, but oh, early doors, they moved a, a few times. But I didn't, I didn't think they moved a lot, to be honest. We well, just, that's a special study. You can write that. Oh, that so. we, just, we just spent two months ago, actually, on the tour of David Bowie in Beckham. Yeah. And he lived in four places in, in three and a half years when he was very little. So when yeah. Yeah. That's not the enterprising and... folk of Beckenham. <laughs> Yeah. Doing really well. If you go to Memphis, Tennessee, you can see the very desk that Elvis Presley recorded Mystery Train on all over town. <laughs> it's like fragments of the True Cross. Is one more question? Is the one more bo- burning to be asked? I can't say. I think it's whoever you're nearest to. Hi, hi, Paul. Did you ever meet him? And if you did, what was it like? After not meeting him at the Mark show. Um, there were a few occasions uh, when I could have nearly interviewed him, nearly met him. Uh, I'm going to finish this story, David. I can tell you're twitching, but I'm going to finish this story. And then, obviously, um, working, uh, collaborating with him to an extent, which was a, an absolute kind of weird dream on the David Boyer's exhibition, where I was called an artistic advisor, but once called David Boyer's representative on Earth, which I quite enjoyed. Um, I thought maybe then I would meet him, but then it occurred to me the David Boy, when he meets you or when you meet him, gives you the David Boy you want. Uh, uh, Glenn Branker said that, the American avant-garde guitarist, you know, and David Boy was very good at that. He was very good at dealing with you. Almost like he had an aristocratic sense of how to deal with you. And there is a world where I could have met him then in 1977 and it would just be a, a different anecdote now and I could have interviewed him for half an hour and I would have had a David Bowie. And then halfway through the David Bowie's exhibition, when it became very clear not only to me but to the Victorian Albert Museum that David Bowie was not going to turn up and we may well indeed not be dealing with David Bowie, uh, just an entity that claimed to be David Bowie, it occurred to me that I wasn't going to meet him at all. And then I thought, he gives you the David Bowie you want. And he knows that the David Bowie I want is the David Bowie I've constructed. It's the illusion. It's the story I tell in the book. And the idea that I would then meet David Bowie, I would just be mean a man. I'd just be dealing with someone who's a bit charming. Uh, And I decided there and then, for my own purposes, obviously, that David Bowie had indeed given me the David Bowie I wanted. Uh, which was to not meet him and to uh, uh, remain an illusion. Excellent. It's been absolutely fascinating. The book is The Age of Bowie, which uh, Paul would be very happy to sign a copy for you out there. I demand it. Absolutely. But uh, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on Word in Your Ear. Would you please 
Big round of applause. Paul Morley. Thank you. Thanks, David. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.